book of Hebrews chapter 1. And you'll remember the last time I was here in the morning services, we started going through this section, this doctrine-rich section at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. And we started a a bit of a series. I said I I really wasn't sure how many messages it would be. We were kind of chuckling this morning. Uh, I guess you add to the number of messages if I decide to keep it at a half an hour. So if if I only preach a half hour, obviously it's going to be more messages. So I guess the number of messages depends on how long-winded I am uh, in the pulpit. But um, a a, a tremendous section of the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 1, specifically... The first three verses, and uh, as I said, we, we already began to uh, consider these verses uh, in the weeks that I've been here in, in the past few months. Uh, the last, uh, well, the, 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 the way we started, the two questions I want to deal with as we go through this, this section is who is Christ and then what has Christ done? And so in dealing with who is Christ... Uh, We're dealing with the first two verses of this section, but specifically verse 2 in dealing with Christ being uh, the one whom God has chosen to speak to his people. In verse 2 it says, "...hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds." And then in verse 3 you also have something of who is Christ... When we read, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. And then right in the middle of the verse, you, trans, uh, you, you, you make the this, this, this shift into what has he done. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is Christ and what has he done? Or if you want to use the theological terms, uh, you're probably not going to find a, a passage in the Scripture that in a more concise fashion deals with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's, that's in essence what we mean when we say uh, concerning Christ, His person and work. Who is Christ and what has He done? And so in the time that I've been here before, we started to go through who is Christ. We considered that He's the Son of God. Uh, and we uh, considered some of the biblical support that shows that Christ was not a creation of God himself, but is actually very God of very God, showed some of the errors that are being taught in the church today by those who reject the deity of Christ. And one of those groups is the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's probably the most popular of the groups that that denies that Christ is Jehovah. We spent some time dealing with Bible verses from the Old Testament as well as the New that the Scripture itself gives testimony that Christ is Jehovah God. And then we continued on to consider that He was the heir of all things. The heir of all things is the position that God appointed to Christ before the foundation of the world that is the focus of his proprietorship, his being over all things. One of the aspects of being an heir isn't just that you receive all things, but that you also uh, have 
this position of authority. And that's, in essence, what Paul means here. Not only that Christ created uh, the worlds, by whom also he made the world, uh, but that he was the heir of all things. And, and as I said, we already dealt with that. The last time I was here, we, we started to deal with the passage in verse 2, the section in verse 2, by whom also he made the worlds. And this was a, a, a section that we kind of uh, got stuck on. We had to kind of stop in the middle of this section. So I want to return to this uh, because in, in, in our society today, especially if you have young people, if you have children that are younger and, and they're being raised in society today, uh, this is an area that uh, your children, uh, as they grow up in a Christian home and as they launch out into the world and seek to be a witness and a testimony for Christ, this will be an area that they will be challenged on at the earliest age. Uh, whenever they start being uh, taught or, or interacting with, with kids their age, uh, the issue of the creation of the world, where did the world come from, the origins of the universe, uh, these are going to be issues that, that they're going to have to deal with. And so, as I said, the last time I was here, we dealt with, started to deal with this. Uh, we dealt with Dr. Cairns and in the dictionary theological terms, only God is eternal. Uh, and that quote that we have from, from the dictionary of, of theological terms. And then I spent some time with, in dealing with uh, the errors in creation or the, in, in relation to the creation or the, the opposition uh, to the divine creation of the universe that you find in the world. Uh, and uh, that is mainly found in evolution. Uh, and specifically where we started to focus was the, the origin of the universe that is, that is taught by the evolutionists, which is the, the Big Bang theory. And so we started to deal with that a little bit uh, last time I was here. I want to spend a little bit more time dealing with the errors related to creationism uh, or, or the, the opposition to creationism and then uh, give you Bible verses to, to, to consider again what the Scripture says about the creation of the world. Because one of the, one of the passages that we uh, were focusing on as, as kind of a uh, a banner text to keep in mind is uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 that uh, faith is a gift for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God and so the one the one banner that we want to keep over this whole discussion concerning creation and these great doctrines that we consider in Ephesians or in in, in Hebrews chapter 1 is that the, the most important thing that we can do is continue to come back to the Scriptures, to the Word of God. And so it isn't an exercise in futility to read about creation from the Scriptures. Uh, our confidence is in the Word of God. We, we make no bones about that. We begin the conversation uh, concerning the beginning of the universe and the origin of the universe, we begin the conversation with the presupposition that God exists. Uh, and we spent a little bit of time dealing with how even, even those that reject creation, uh, a, a divine creator, also have to take certain things as presuppositions. Uh, whenever you're arguing about the creation or the beginning of the universe, uh, there are things that, 
you have to assume uh, that existed because none of us were there. So if you reject what the scripture says concerning creation and you believe in the evolutionary process that, and, and one thing I learned about evolution uh, this week is that um, that term actually isn't just applied to the evolution of, of life on the earth. There are actually three different ways in which the word evolution is applied in science. And one of them is cosmic evolution. Because it isn't just that the rejectors of creation, those that reject that God created the world, it isn't just that they believe that man evolved, but they believe that the, the cosmos evolved. And we'll, we'll get a little into that a little bit more. Uh, as I said, we're going to expand on this a little bit. But before we do, I do want to uh, have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to help us in our time this morning. Father, we are thankful once again for the time that we can spend around thy word. And Father, we pray that as we consider these, these doctrines in the word of God, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would know that the very, the very same one who took to himself human flesh and came into this world to redeem us and to save our souls is the one who has existed from all eternity and who spoke the worlds into being. Father, we are thankful this morning for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that thou wilt help us as we consider this, this topic, that our hearts would be encouraged and built up in our most holy faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in dealing with this theme of Christ being the creator of the world, as I say, we, we, uh, we began to deal with some of the errors. We, we focused upon what uh, the ungodly say happened, what took place uh, in the creation of the, of the universe about 13.8 billion years ago. The universe expanded uh, and it caused this, this uh, explosion. Um, I did actually a, a, a little bit more research on what they say. And, and, and I preached on this a while ago, many years ago, almost 20 years ago. And I had a quote that I got off of NASA's website that actually uh, said what their view was concerning the size of the matter before the explosion. And we look at the universe today and, and with, with telescopes and with the ability that we have to see how vast the universe is and, and, and the great cosmos that exists, uh, they actually believe, and this is why I say that every argument, regardless of whether you reject God as the creator or whether you accept creation, every argument regarding the beginning of the, of the universe starts with certain presuppositions. And we are often referred to as the ones who are ignorant of the science, that we are the ones that simply have blind faith in what the Bible says about the, the creation, but they have the science, right? And so listen to what I, I, I read off of astronomy.com, okay? And this is, this is even better than the quote I originally had off of NASA's website because the, the whole article actually begins that the title of the article is uh, how did the big bang start from the size of a pinhead <laughs> so the article goes on it's this long article on astronomy.com but but the, the the paragraph i want to focus on is this it says if we extrapolate even further back in time we can imagine a hypothetical state that may have been present about 10 to minus 43 seconds after the big bang okay I, it's shortly after the Big Bang. 
The laws of physics as we currently understand them, including general relativity and quantum mechanics, don't allow us to extrapolate any further back than this so-called Planck time. At the Planck time, the region that is now our observable universe would have been only a fraction of a millimeter in diameter or smaller than the size of a pinhead. Smaller than the size of a pinhead. And I, I thought how interesting that they use the word pinhead uh, in dealing with this because usually that is the term that's given to someone that has no brain or doesn't think things through. And that would be the accusation that they would bring against those that believe that the Lord created all things of nothing. But to believe that the known universe that we can see came from, from matter that started the size of a pinhead and then to hear them say that we are the ones that are stepping out on faith uh, always blows me away. I thought it's interesting that it may have started from the size of a pinhead, but if you believe that, you may actually be stepping into the very description you're using in your article. Uh, but uh, the original quote that I found on NASA, they said it was several millimeters in diameter, but this actually goes back further. It goes to the point that they believe everything in the known universe came from the size of a pinhead. Now, Answers in Genesis has some very good um, material on their website. And it all, if, if you type in and do an internet search, it says Answers in Genesis, and then type in the Big Bang Theory. They actually give a, a, a Christian perspective on, on how we are to approach the Big Bang Theory. And this is, this is what they say. The Big Bang Theory is a naturalistic, uh, or actually naturalistic, and then I have in parentheses what naturalism means. Maybe some of you don't know uh, the actual definition. When we talk about if someone's a naturalist in regard to the origin of the universe, what do we mean by that? Well, it, it, naturalism is the philosophical belief that everything arises from natural properties and causes and supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded or discounted. Okay, So if you call yourself a naturalist, then you are discounting or excluding altogether the possibility of a creator. And that would even go to the extent of an intelligent designer. Uh, it doesn't even, it's not exclusively those that believe the Bible account of creation. A naturalist would believe that everything that you see has evolved from natural sources, that there is no creator involved in any extent. Okay, so just so you know, we have, you, have a, a, you have creationists and then you have naturalists. And a naturalist, as I say, rejects or diminishes. Uh, although technically, if you, it's, it's hard to diminish the work of a creator. Either, the, either there's a creator or there's no creator. Uh, there, there is no diminishing. So a naturalist would reject that there's a creator, whether it's an intelligent designer or uh, the biblical creator that, that we read about in the scriptures. So the Big Bang is a naturalistic story, and this is coming from a Christian perspective, the answers in Genesis, about the origin and development of the universe, beginning with a singularity when all mass, energy, and space was contained in much smaller volume than the universe today. It is riddled with problems supported by numerous unobserved assumptions and most importantly contradicts the biblical teaching of creation. They go on to say, how did our universe come, to, come into existence? Did it come about entirely by natural means? 
Was it created by God? And if so, how did he do it? Did God start the clock ticking and then used natural methods to allow the universe to mature over billions of years? Or did he create everything supernaturally, finishing the heavens and celestial objects by the first four days of a creation week? These questions are central to our understanding of the purpose of the universe and our significance within it. And then they have three things that are the groundwork of a biblical approach uh, or a, the, the biblical approach to rejecting uh, what the ungodly say is the beginning of the universe. First of all, the Bible tells us that God created heaven, earth, and everything within them in the span of six days and rested on the seventh. This is the basis for our work week. In contrast, the Big Bang model claims that the universe and the earth were formed over billions of years. Now, it's interesting in dealing with the uh, the creation of the world and everything that we see in it within four days of the cosmos and the earth and the stars, um, there are those that would believe that somehow evolution works uh, within that, that the term days that's used there is actually talking about eons of time. Uh, the problem with that, and it may have already dawned on you, is that the very same language and the very same word that's used to describe that what God did on those days of creation is actually used to describe what we are to do on the Sabbath day. After creation, God rested on the seventh day. Same word. I don't think you have the biblical warrant to say one of the terms right there in that same passage. And when, when the word day is used, it's talking about billions of years where the Lord used these naturalistic ways of evolving the earth. And then right at the end of the passage say, well, that is a 24-hour period because God rested on the seventh day. Well, they, and some may say, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that that was a 24-hour period. Well, it has to mean it was a 24-hour period because the Lord himself in the giving of the law says that we are to rest on the seventh day of the week, which for us is a 24-hour period, because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So you can't, as a believer, you can't approach the word day that you find in the early chapters of Genesis and somehow read into that uh, in, in the hopes of silencing the critics of the scriptures, uh, that somehow God in, the, in this day actually used millions and billions of years and used evolution in his creative process. The, if language means anything and, and the, the integrity of the text means anything, right there in that same passage, you can't interpret day in one place, meaning billions of years, and then in just a couple of verses later, take the word day and say it's a 24-hour period. Now, it's very clear from the scriptures and from the way that the Lord commands us to keep the Sabbath day, that the Lord wants us to understand that everything that was created in the world, everything that is material, was created in six days, 24-hour periods, and then we are to rest and remember what the Lord did on the Sabbath day, that's when we have the Sabbath day. Did you ever wonder, and this is, this is one thing that I, I try to encourage people, especially people that have, have children and you're raising children in your home. You want to raise them in the fear and nurture of the Lord. One of the questions that's often asked, especially in a denomination that believes that we are to keep the Sabbath day, the question's often asked, well, what, what is 
what's allowable and what's not allowable on the Sabbath day, right? Even, even Christ often took issue with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees took issue with Christ over what was allowable on the Sabbath day. And I don't think it's ever, it was ever the, the will of God for us to be uh, with, a, with a magnifying glass over the day, uh, sitting there with a rod, tapping everyone back in line if they began to, to stray from what should be the behavior or the, the mindset of God's people on the Sabbath day. Is there, is there a general rule that we can apply to those uh, if we're talking to a believer, if someone asks us, what, what is it that God wants me to do on the Sabbath day? I think there is. And I think it's right in the commandment itself. The, the, the reasons that are annexed to the commandments, as you go through the, the, uh, the, the shorter catechism, one of the questions is, what are the reasons, reasons annexed? And they go through each commandment. What, what are the reasons annexed to the first commandment? What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? One thing I, I thought was very interesting that they, they, they seem to have left out the framers of the catechism. And, and by no means am I saying that they didn't do the. It's probably the greatest doctrinal booklet that you'll ever get your hands on, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the only thing that's better than the Westminster Shorter Catechism is the Westminster Larger Catechism because it goes into more detail. Okay, so the Westminster Shorter Catechism probably is the greatest synopsis of doctrine that you can give to a child to instruct him in the ways of the Lord. But one thing that I thought was very interesting is that when it came to the Sabbath day and the reasons annexed to the Sabbath day, they, they only focused on creation. And you would say, well, of course. Isn't that, well, isn't that the commandment? Isn't that the commandment? God, God said keep the Sabbath day because in six days I did everything and rested the seventh day? Well, that is true. But there are two givings of the law. Did you know that? Actually, the book of Deuteronomy is actually, it got its name from the second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means, the second law. Moses gave the law publicly to Israel two separate times. I want you to see something uh, that changed. It's the only commandment that the reason annexed to it changed from the one giving of the law to the next. I saw this a couple of years ago and I was amazed. I said, I'm amazed that I haven't heard this from any of the Puritans or any of the other men that I, that I, I read or any of these bodies of doctrine um, that that I read. Genesis chapter 20, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20 is the first giving of the law, right? Exodus chapter 20. Okay, and it begins, God spake all these words, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Go down to verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, this is the commandment. And then he goes on to say, Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Okay, this is the reason annexed to it, right? For in six days, or because 
This is why the Lord is commanding us. Because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So you say, what's the reason annexed to the seventh commandment, or to the to keeping the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment? It's that the Lord made everything in six days, rested the seventh day. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the second giving of the law. Okay, and it begins a little further down after a brief introduction. Verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all here alive today. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord thy God, verse 6, brought thee out of the land of Egypt, house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And as you read through this, it's almost exactly the same word for word, except the fourth commandment. Uh, verse 12 keep the sabbath day to sanctify it as the lord thy god hath commanded thee six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work but the seventh day is the sabbath of the lord thy god in it thou shalt not do any work thou nor thy son nor thy daughter thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thine ox nor thine ass nor any of thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou sort of the same right but then what? And this is where in the first giving of the law says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. But it doesn't say that. In verse 15 it says, and remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that, thou, that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Did you ever see that? Did you ever notice that? The reason annexed to the, to the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy 5 is completely different. It's the only commandment that changed. And it's being given now to a people that have been redeemed. Okay, so the first time the law was given, keep the Sabbath because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and then he rested. The second giving is because you were a bondman in the land of Egypt. And the Lord redeemed thee with a mighty hand with a stretched out arm. I didn't realize for the longest time, and maybe I did, I just didn't think it through. But when they were in Egypt, God's people did not have a Sabbath day. They worked seven days. The Egyptians, that was part of the hard labor that was put upon Israel. And the Lord actually says one of the blessings of redemption is he's going to give them a Sabbath day. So in this giving of the commandment, he's not drawing upon his work as creator as to the reason why we're to keep the Sabbath, but he's drawing upon his work as redeemer. And so you ask the question then, what do these two things have in common? And this is tying it all back to to what we're dealing with. What is it that God as our creator and God as our redeemer, what do they have in common? Ownership ownership even even paul says that the potter has power over the clay to make one vessel unto honor and the other unto dishonor right so the potter has power over the clay the lord is our creator he has complete power over his creation shall the thing formed say to him that formed it why hast thou made me thus right it's 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 an exercise in stupidity for the thing formed to say to the creator why'd you make me this way right and so in, in in a certain sense, 
the command to keep the Sabbath day is applied to all of God's creation. So we can go out and command everyone, even those that reject Christ, that they are obligated by the Father to keep the Sabbath day. But beyond that, there's even a greater application of the Sabbath day made to his people. And this is why the fourth commandment is so precious for the people of God. Because the Lord is saying, not only do you belong to me and, and, and am I over you in the fact that I'm your creator, but you have a special relationship with me. I have a special relationship with you that no one else in the entire world can call me the Redeemer except my people. And so it even adds more heinousness, if you want to use the word. It adds more spite to the breaking of the Sabbath day. As a believer, if you just regard the Sabbath day as another day. Because not only are you saying that I'm not going to spend the day thankful that God's my creator, but the special privilege that we have that's been given to us to keep the Lord's day is connected to redemption as well. And it's, it amazes me. It amazes me, right? Here's, here's Israel in Egypt. And they're crying out to the Lord to be delivered from their bondage. And the Lord does. And he says, now I'm going to give you a Sabbath day to remind you of your redemption. And one of the first, <laughs> one of the first things they want to do is go back to Egypt. It's like, do you not understand the blessing that the Lord has given to you as a child of God, as those that have been redeemed? He's given you a Sabbath day. And so I, I get back to this, you know, if you have kids and, and you're trying to raise children in the fear of the Lord and you see this commandment, you say, what, what am I supposed to do on the Lord's day? I, I don't think it's the responsibility of the, from the pulpit to say, do this, this, and don't do this, and do this. I think generally speaking, there's a banner that, that resides over the day. That we are to spend the day meditating and remembering that we are owned by God, not only as his creation, but also as his redemption. If you spend the day thinking upon those things, I think you're probably going to be pretty close to the divine intention of the Lord's day. That's why we gather in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day. That's why we try to encourage God's people to attend an evening service. The Lord didn't say, remember the Sunday morning service to keep it holy. He's given us a day. And most of the time, the reason why we don't attend the Sunday evening service is because we are meditating and thinking about things that are going on in the world. The very thing that we are commanded not to be giving ourselves to thinking about on the Sabbath day. Remember, the Sabbath day was given to man as a blessing, not as a drudgery or a bondage. Okay, so many people view what the approach for God's people should be on the Lord's Day as a bondage. Oh, it's so, it's, I, it's, it's, it's so, I, I can just barely come to the service and I just don't got it in me. Well, maybe you're not 
thinking upon the reason why God gave the Lord's Day. He's actually given us the, the joy of not having to be distracted with work and with sports and with, as the, as the framers of the, the catechism said, the employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, right? So it brings us back to, to remembering that we belong to God. And if you're walking with the Lord, that's where you want to be. I want to be, every day I want to be in the place where when I wake up in the morning, I'm reminded that I belong to Christ and I belong to the Lord. That I meditate upon what Christ has done and the, and the blessings and the promises. There's a reason why Spurgeon wrote the checkbook of faith and gives you a promise to bring back to the Lord every day. Right? In a sense, that's what we do when we bring promises and meditate upon promises and bring them back to the Lord. We're remembering that we belong to the Lord. If we belong to the Lord, then all these promises are yea and amen in Christ. And specifically, the Lord has given us one day out of the week that we are to spend meditating upon those things. And that's the Sabbath day. Right? So, that all came from me saying that one of the things that we accept and reject of the Big Bang Theory is that the Lord made the world in six days. That's why I have a funny feeling I'm never going to get through this, this uh, message from, from Hebrews chapter 1. But I, I had noticed, Brother Dirk ordered a book. One of the books he ordered was about the Sabbath day. And I wasn't even intending on saying this, but I noticed that. It happened to be right on the top of the, of the books that was ordered. And I, I, when I gave it over, put it, put it out there, I, I, I noticed that that was there. And as I was thinking about this, I thought maybe that was just the Lord's way of saying you need to, to mention this. Because the, one of the worst things that you can find, one of the worst places you can find yourself as a believer is, is looking at God's day as a drudgery. Or that you, you hate the Lord's day, right? You may not put it in those words, but coming to God's house is more of like a duty, right? And I've been there, okay? I've been there. Maybe something at the church has you discouraged, right? And, and you've been there too. I know you've been there. Where looking forward to the Lord's day is not something that you're looking forward to. You're... you're Waiting, just can't wait until it passes. That's not the reason why the Lord. The Lord gave us his day and the, the blessing of meeting together in his house with his people as an encouragement to remember that we belong to him, right? So if you, if you spend the day in things that are related to that, I think you're probably getting close to the heart of what the Lord wants you to do on his day. Remember, when you come to God's house, we worship him because he's creator. He owns us. But we have the second giving of that commandment as well, that we come to God's house as those that have been redeemed. And the same way he gave Israel a Sabbath when he brought them out of Egypt, he's given us a Sabbath today to rejoice not only in creation, but redemption. As well, So the Bible tells us that God created heaven and earth and everything within the, in the span of six days rested the seventh day. It's the basis for our work week. And it's actually, I'll just put this out there. If you want to talk to me about this later, um, 
it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. And I may have said something to some of you folks about this in the past, but I, I, I think it's not only the basis of the work week. I actually think it's the basis for how long the world is going to exist in its current state. Because one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So I have this theory. You can't, we don't know when the world was created, so you don't know exactly the day when the Lord's coming back. But I don't, I don't think it's by coincidence that the Lord gives us six days, gives man six days to do everything that he's going to do. And then seventh day commands that everything stops. Right? And then he's the one that says, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. Is it going to be that when it's all said and done, that the Lord returns at the end of 6,000 full years to usher in the eternal Sabbath? Maybe. Maybe. We, we don't know what, I mean, we, we could be off on usher's chronology as to when the world was founded. We could be off by a couple hundred years. He's estimating as to when the world was, was created. 4000 BC. But that could be off by 100 years or so. You never know exactly. You can't work it out to the actual day. But I don't think it's by coincidence that the Lord chooses that as a way to say that he dwells outside of time. There's so many other ways he could have said that, that I dwell outside of time. But he decided to say one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. And he says it in a couple places. So I don't think, as, as they say here, it's, it's only that it's the basis of the, of the work week and then we rest. I think it's actually the basis of man's time on the earth before Christ ushers in the eternal state for his people. But we can talk about that some other time. But that's what we, we reject when we reject the Big Bang. Not that the world and the universe... The known universe formed over billions of years. Second thing is that Genesis tells us that God created the stars on the fourth day, three days after the earth was created. Okay? In contrast, the Big Bang model claims that stars existed billions of years before the earth. Okay? So they have it backwards, and we stand with the scriptures. The third thing is the Bible tells us the earth was made from water. And this is important. The earth, when it was created, was actually made it was without form and void, and, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The word deep there is actually the Old Testament word for water. And you remember, on the third day of creation, land was created. There was no dry ground when the Lord created originally the, the, the way that the earth existed. On the third day of creation, the dry land came up out of the water. And so the world was made from water. And one of the weeks that I'm here over the next couple months, we're actually going to be spending time in 2 Peter chapter 3 and then going back to Genesis chapter 1 to answer some of the questions that people may have concerning some of the language that's found in Genesis chapter 1. The more I'm studying through Genesis chapter 1 and comparing it with 2 Peter chapter 3, I think there's a very clear picture coming together as to the way in which the world was, was created. But, but 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about the old world, the world that then was. It was in the water and out of the water. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the world that now is, is being kept in store reserved unto the... So there's, 
there's definitely a change. And this is the basis of Peter's argument in 2 Peter chapter 3. The scoffers come along and say, where's the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the, the beginning. And Peter says, no, it didn't continue the way it did from the beginning. That something happened, the Lord judged sin, and the evidence is seen in the world all around us, in geology, in, in many things. And they're willfully ignorant of the fact that the Lord destroyed the, the, the world by a flood. But that world, it's, it's referred to as the world that then was and the world that now is, right? The world that we live in now is, is completely different. I mean, the, the essence of it was the same, but there were a lot of things that were different before the flood. People lived, people lived to be 900 years old, right? And right after the flood, the life expectancy starts plummeting, right? I mean, we talk about life expectancy going down, or up, you know, it's like one or two years. I mean, we're talking like 800 years after the flood. Like, all of a sudden, a couple hundred years later, people were, are maxing out at 120, right? You went from like 960 to 120. So something obviously happened, right? And I think the more you study it, the more you realize that the, the, the world, the way it looked and the way it was before the flood was completely different. So I want to spend time dealing with that because there's a lot of confusion, about the way that the world was, and even going back to the way that the world was created. Uh, but it's different than it is now, and I think there's things in the scriptures that we can kind of piece things together to get a rough estimate. Again, it's, it's not something that the Lord spends a lot of time on. He goes through creation. He's more concerned in the Genesis account dealing with sin. And I think that's a word to us as well is that if the Lord, in giving the creation account, is more concerned about sin and the effects of sin and why Christ came into the world and the first promise of a Redeemer, maybe we should be more concerned about that than about the way that the world was before the flood. Right? That's where the Lord puts the emphasis. So I think that's where we need to put the emphasis as well. So we'll spend some time dealing with that as the Lord helps in, in the days to come. But the Bible tells us the world was, the earth was made from water. But the standard secular model teaches that the earth began as a molten planet which cooled over millions of years and that the oceans were the result of an asteroid or a meteor impact or from dissolution of comets as they entered the earth's atmosphere, right? Again, it's, the, it's not even, it's not even a, an example that you can go to to somehow work in a theistic evolution completely contradictory to what the, the scripture says about the world. The above examples, and this is finishing the, the answers in Genesis account, the above examples are just a few of the many problems with the Big Bang model. There simply isn't any good reason to believe in the Big Bang. It's not compatible with the Bible, and it's not good science. Any scientific model which must be propped up continually with unverifiable hypotheses is not is not falsifiable and therefore not science. In fact, it's blind faith. Okay? They're saying exactly what our conclusion has been all along. Everyone starts their argument concerning the beginnings of the universe from a position of faith. There are things that you have to accept by faith. It's just that they reject our trusting God's word by faith. And yet that's where we stand. I have much more confidence, and, and obviously I'm saying this again, faith is a gift. It's a gift given by God. I'm acknowledging that 
The Lord has given me this gift of faith to be able to come to the scripture and say, I believe that. From a child, even before I was saved, the Lord, I believe, had me in a, in a situation uh, with the parents that I had that I always came to the Bible as it was God's word. And I thank the Lord for that. I, I thank the Lord that I never had to sit there and, and question whether or not what was written in the Bible was true. And, and the older that I got, the more I realized that it isn't just that I believe God wrote this, but the, the way that the scripture deals with my nature. It's almost like I'm sitting across from a psychologist that knows everything about me, right? How can you read that? You read Romans chapter 1, read Romans chapter 3, talking about Romans chapter 5, about what happened when Adam fell into sin. It describes the world in which we live, right? I've never, I, 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 I've always, and, and, and the Lord is to be thanked, because I know I went to school with kids that never started from this basis. They always rejected God's word. So I realize it's a mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that I have always come to the Bible with the presupposition it's the word of God. And I'm not going to sit there and try to talk to someone who rejects it, try to explain to them why the Bible's the word of God. If they want to have that discussion sometime, that's fine. But my initial challenge to them is I'm just preaching what the Bible says and trust that the Lord will open their eyes. Because that's the way the Lord has chosen to open the eyes of the ungodly. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? Right. So we, we approach this. We come from the presupposition that is established in the scripture. I start by saying in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's where I begin. I'm not going to sit there and try and talk to people about why I believe that. I believe it because God says it. And that's, that's, that's the end of it. Reject it. Call me a nut. Call me crazy. I'm happy. I'm content to begin my understanding of the creation of the known universe in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We'll, we'll finish this section tonight. Um, I was only, only going to do them in the morning, but um, I, like I said, I'm never going to get through this in the, in, the, in the weeks that I come out here unless I, I do it in, in other times that I wasn't planning to do it. But it's very important, like I said, especially if you have children or you're, you're hoping to raise children in an ungodly society. Those kids may not ever come face to face with you know, someone in the trans movement. They may never come face to face with, you know, a, a, a politician that hates Christ. Or they, but I, I will almost guarantee you they will always come face to face with someone that rejects what the Bible says concerning creation. So it's very important that we, we understand our position on this and what the world teaches. We both come from positions of faith. Don't let them say otherwise. You know, they don't start from a position of science. Okay, they don't start. They start from a position of a pinhead, literally. That's where they begin their argument about where the world began, the, the, the known universe. I, I prefer to start from the, the, the beginning of the book that has been used uh, by societies for thousands of, the, of years as the basis for morality and order in society. 
And every time this book is rejected, you find disorder and, and violence and a rejection of the standard that God has, has established. The, the most blessed societies in the history of mankind have been societies that have followed this book. And the most chaotic societies in the history of mankind are societies that have rejected this book. So given the two options of beginning my view of the cosmos from positions of faith, I choose the scriptures and I choose the the position of order and law and the blessing of the Lord. I'm happy to, 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 to lay my hat there and to believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Makes it a lot more simple for me. And that I have to answer to him. He's my creator and he's my redeemer. I trust that the Lord will, will bless these thoughts to us. Tonight we're actually going to go through verse by verse some of these major passages that talk about God as the creator. And then we'll, we'll finish up that section uh, and apply it to Christ as we find it here in this, in this section. But uh, to close the, the message, we're going to sing hymn number 600. I'm sorry, that's for tonight. We're going to sing hymn number 275, The Savior of Sinners. So turn in your hymn books to 275. Christ is the Savior of Sinners. And we'll stand and sing all four verses of this hymn.